I would have liked to have gotten into a competitive car to see what I could have done. But I think that I could have won races. Welcome everyone to Beyond the Grid with me, Tom Clarkson. My guest this week is an American motorsport legend. He won the Indy 500 and the IndyCar title, but all that came after Formula One. Because in the early 80s, he raced for Tyrrell, scoring points at Monaco in 1983 and finishing second in the Race of Champions. The man I'm talking about is, of course, Danny Sullivan. Danny's story is unusual. He grew up in Kentucky and had no family links to motorsport. In fact, it was while earning a living as a taxi driver in New York that racing first entered his conscience. He then moved to England and stopped at nothing in his pursuit of Formula One. Danny was immediately quick when placed alongside Michele Alboreto in the Tyrrell, and he deserved more than a single season with the team. But Formula One's loss was IndyCar's gain, and he went on to achieve great success with the likes of Penske in North America. However, he always retained his links with Formula One, to the extent that he went on to front Red Bull's search for an American Grand Prix driver in the early 2000s, and he's now a race steward for the FIA. Danny remembers his career like it was yesterday, and he tells some great stories about his time in F1 and with the Tyrrell family in particular. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Danny, it's wonderful to have you on the show. Thank you for your time. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Now, race fans know you primarily for your success in IndyCar and, of course, winning the Indy 500 back in 1985. But how often are you asked about your time in Formula One? Surprisingly, a little bit more so now because I think there's a generation that seems to have come from Europe now that have gone back in some of the days. I don't know whether that's just availability of video and so forth, but I get a lot of questions like, for example, Race of Champions, uh, Monaco, uh, some events like that. It surprises me now with the fan mail how much of that it comes from Formula One. I'm going to ask you about both of those uh, races, but a little bit later, because even with all of your success in America, on a personal level, how important is it for you to have Formula One on your racing CV? Well, to be honest with you, when I started, my mentor, Dr. Frank Faulkner, was an Englishman, and I went to the Jim Russell School. I knew Ken Tyrrell because of Frank Faulkner. I didn't know Ken personally before that, uh, Sir Jackie Stewart. So my, when I started, my racing started in Europe with Formula Ford. So my goal was really Formula One, always was Formula One. Um, you know, I raced a little bit in America in the late 70s and in Atlantic and Canada, but my whole goal was Formula One. And do you have European roots in your family or where did that passion for Formula One come from? Well, really, all my, my desire to do the racing came from Dr. Frank Faulkner, who Englishman, but was very tight with 
Bruce McLaren and Sterling Moss and back in the day, John Cooper and him raced Formula Juniors before there was even a Cooper Formula Junior. So I had gone as a friend of his his son, I'd look at all the auto course and automobile years and the pictures on the wall and everything. And that's really where my racing came from. My family, everybody, we're from Kentucky. My dad was in the construction business, had two family station wagons, you know, estate cars. I had no background, didn't follow the racing. It all came from those impressions of those books. But one thing is reading a book. And another thing is pursuing a career in that sport, isn't it? Well, it started in a funny way because of my age. I was Vietnam War. I was in that era of Vietnam War. Had gone to military school and high school. And then when I went to university, believe it or not, my lottery number came out very high. And so I basically dropped out of school and was bumming around in New York uh, as a waiter and drove a cab. Frank Faulkner came to see me at a request of my parents to see if they could put me back on the right track. No pun intended. And we were just having a beer one night. And I said, look, I'd really like to try racing. I knew nothing about it. I was one crazy in the infield one year at the Indianapolis 500, but I, you know, there wasn't the TV coverage there is now or the internet or anything like that. And, and so he asked Jackie Stewart, now Sir Jackie, and said, what, what should we do? And he said, send the lad to Jim, Jim Russell. Let's find out if he has any talent. And, and literally, I came over as a birthday present from Frank and uh, went to the Jim Russell School, and that's how it all started. So look, you do seven years racing in Europe, and it leads to that drive with Tyrrell in 1983. How did that come about? Benetton had joined them as a sponsor, and Benetton was pushing into the U.S. market. So Ken invited me to come across for a test. There was like eight or nine other drivers. There was Stefan Johansson, Bebby Gabbiani. Uh, I don't think Teo Fabi was in it, but Bruno Giacomelli. All the, all the hot guys from Formula 2 in that, at that time. And it's, it's actually funny. So I come over there. I got there early. Paul Ricard in like late November or December. So you can imagine the weather's not particularly good. And I got there and Ken gave me, which I'm sure he gave everybody, a contract before we drove the car. And Garvin Brown, who was my backer in the United States, and Garvin came in and he said, why are you getting changed? I said, I can't sign the contract. I can't even live. You know, I didn't have money to fall back on or whatever. I said, Garvin, the, the first year I'm going to get paid less than it's going to cost me to get to each race. Thanks, Ken. <laughs> exactly. And uh, Garvin said, don't worry. If you get the drive, he said, I'll take care of all that. I'll, I'll back that side of it. So I said, OK. And I went out and I was the last one to go. And I was getting set in the car, and you remember Roger Hill. And, and I knew Roger because I'd been a gopher for the team and I hung out with him for a long time. Roger just leans in the car and he goes, Danny, just drive the car. And I went out and I was, uh, I'd gone quicker on every lap than everybody else. And so I got invited to do a test in Brazil. Remember they used to go down to Rio and do tire testing for good There for about two weeks. Yeah, they, it was, <laughs> and I got down there early thinking I'm going to do all this testing and at the end, and remember they had qualifying tires in so I went out to learn the track on a, the normal set of compound and I did um, like three laps. Ken comes in and he gives me a set of McKaylee's used qualifiers and uh, I was only two tenths slower than McKaylee 
on those used qualifiers. And he's he, typical Ken. He says, "Well, you selected yourself, you oh, know, wow. type thing." And that's literally how it, it started. How did you find the car? I mean, were, were you ready for Formula One? Well, I had been racing in the states, so I'd done some Can-Am. They were a lot more downforce because all that bodywork, but they were about the same power, if not maybe a little bit more, than the Cosworth at that time. So from the power perspective, I was I was prepared for it, and I knew. Uh, most of the European tracks. I didn't know places like South Africa, um, Kailami, but I knew most of the European tracks. So from that perspective, I was pretty, I mean, I think, I think I was pretty ready. I mean, you know, listen, I think when we started in Formula Ford, we all think we're ready. The reality is we're not. But Ken, the whole Tyrrell team, I'd been around them, so I was a little bit of a, an outside family member in there because of working for him through the years as a gopher. And then McKaylee was a superb teammate. He was just a great guy to be around, was very open. Uh, you know, if you had a question, he would talk to you about it. So from that perspective, you just got engaged right away. Can I ask you a little bit more about your relationship with the Tyrrell family? You say you, you've made a couple of references to being a gopher for them. When did you first meet Ken? I met Ken and Nora because, of course, they were inseparable in those days as well. I met Ken and Nora at the Quester Grand Prix at Ontario Motor Speedway. And I was coming to, across to, to go to the Jim Russell School in May. And the Equestrian Grand Prix, I think, was like in March or something like that, maybe first part of April. And remember, they had the Formula 1s and the Formula 5000 cars at Ontario Motor Speedway. It was kind of an oval with a road course. And uh, I went with Frank, Dr. Faulkner, and got there, and I got along with Ken and them. And he says, hey, you're coming over for the Jim Russell School. And I said, yes. He said, why don't you come a couple of days early? And come stay with us, and I'll have something planned. Well, the plan was, remember, they used to do the Race of Champions at Silverstone. But how about this? I come over there. I'm some, I'm a hick from Kentucky, you know, that had been bumming around in New York. And I get over there. Ken's son, Kenneth, picked me up at the airport. A hair-raising ride in a mini down the A3 to, you know, to East Torsley. I stay there. The next day, we go up to, they're doing a film, a launch at the BBC on, on Jackie and everything. I'm in the room. There's, there's caviar, champagne. I go to Silverstone with them, and Colin Chapman and Maurice Philippe fly me back to Snetterton, you know, because Hethel was right there with the thing in the plane, and they send me over to the hotel for the Jim Russell School in a Gold Leaf Team Lotus car. Okay. You don't this hang is, around, do you? It was like <laughs> I've just arrived in England, and right, and I'm, I'm not even I'm not even any kind of a driver or anything. And when I pulled up at the hotel, somebody said something like, "Well, I see you're very well connected," you know, sort of thing like that. But it quickly went to reality right, right after that. But when I did my school, did a couple of races to get my license. Then I went back to the States to help raise the money with Frank to see if I could come back and race in Formula Ford. I lived with Ken and Nora for three months that summer uh, before the Formula Ford deal. So I got to know them, and I knew Bobby and Kenneth and Sandra and the, the family. And, and at one stage, Ken said, this is really nice, but I think you might have to try to find a place to live. <laughs> but, it, but, you know, think about it in East Orleans. There's not exactly rental you know, mm. stuff there. But What year are we talking now? 1971. I did the school. Then I worked at Bell and Colville right down the 
hill from Ken's house on the way to the shop, just pumping gas and everything in the summertime, living at Ken and Norris, and then I'd go with them to the races. So that was the summer of 71. And then I went back later in that fall, and I went to them with, to the Canadian Grand Prix and the U.S. Grand Prix because I was back living in the but States. Danny, this is extraordinary. Just to put this in 2021 speak, this is like a young guy coming over and living with Toto Wolf, isn't it? Yeah. And exactly. going to all the races yeah. with Mercedes, hanging out with Lewis Hamilton. It was like that, wasn't it? Yeah, because, I mean, Jackie was, that year it was his second world championship and he was the man. I mean, and, and Francois Sever was the other, you remember Francois Sever? Of course, of course. He was the, he was the number two driver and... I remember at Barcelona, I was a gopher, and they, you know, I'm staying at the hotel, and, and uh, Francois said, what are you doing tonight? You know, you're kind of like, I, I, I don't know. He said, do you have a jacket? And I said, yeah. He said, come to dinner with me. And they were so nice, you know, and, and it was, you know, it was a lot more family then. Danny, what was Francois Sever like? He was prob- beautiful blue eyes. Oh, the blue, even in a black and white photograph, those, those eyes stand out. He was as nice a person as you'd meet, um, very open. We'd have conversations about some funny stuff. I mean, uh, you know, I remember at that dinner and I was asking him and I said, uh, you're not here with your, you know, your girlfriend. And he, he goes, I said, what? He says, I never sleep alone. <laughs> I was like, yeah. Okay. And somehow you believe him, don't you? Yeah. <laughs> but, he, but he couldn't have been a more polite, uh, generous, I mean, and he was very quick. I mean, he was right on, you know, par with Jackie. Um, I mean, what a tragic loss. But I think that Francois, remember Jackie was going to retire, right? and that kind of sealed the deal, if you like. Mm. But when Francois was killed... Uh, Were you at the Glen in 1973? I, I was not there uh, that year because I was. Thank goodness, I was, really. I was in Europe r- racing, mm. and thank God because it was just uh, horrible. But I think that they really thought he it was ready to pass the time to pass the thing, and he could have stepped in and been a world champion right after that. What about Jackie Stewart? Did he help you in your career? Did he give you any advice on driving in terms of putting you in contact with other? other people it doesn't sound like you needed much help well no you always do but you know where Jackie was really good and I really believe this even about drivers you know you have a talent and you could go to somebody and say you know I'm having trouble at this corner or that corner or something like that what Jackie really taught me was about the first thing that was really funny was the signature you know Jackie's signature it's very legible and that was the first lesson he said, have a signature that people can read. He said, don't have it look like a hen scratch or something like that. Have it so people can read it because that, they'll always remember that. And he taught me stuff about that, about always be nice to people because you never know who, who they are. He was really almost the first true professional in the sense of a marketing professional, corporate professional. Look at him. He's still with Rolex. He, He's still with, probably with Ford, with, with um, Elf, with, you know, those things never went away. Jackie, even to this day, when you see him out there, he's still the consummate professional. And if you go, really go back and think about his record, 99 Grand Prix that he did, and he won 27 with three world championships. That number is staggering if you look at the percentages of that, that type thing. In a, in a day when two, 
it was harder to dominate by one car being more superior than another. What an intro for you, though, in the world of Formula One. And just living with Ken and Nora Tyrrell, uh, Ken strikes me as a, a man who liked a full English breakfast every day. Is that, is yeah, that true? That's true. Yeah. You know, and he also loved a great argument. Whoever was there, he would just, he'd almost throw out a subject just to start the debate. Are we talking just motor racing or could it be anything? Anything. So I was, um, I was quicker in McKaylee at, at the second race at, Brand, at the Grand Prix at Brands Hatch. I had finally gotten the, you know, they had different specs, DFVs at the time. And, and so quite rightly, because McKaylee was a winner and, and was number one in the team, he got the spec. Well, eventually, as they started filtering down and made more of them, I got it. And at that race, I outqualified McKaylee by a second at Brands Hatch. And... McKaylee and I are coming in in the morning, and you know how you come down the road to, to, uh, through the tunnel and down the road, and we're coming down. He says, I had nothing to do with it. I said, what are you talking about? He said, I had nothing to do with it. Well, they had given him my car, and I went into Ken, and I said, you know, what the F? You know, what do you, what, why? He's not in threat for the championship or anything like that. If he's got a problem with his car, my car, I out-qualify him, and we had this big heated argument over it he didn't give me the car but I went and made the changes and I found one of the changes on it silly anyway long story short um, Ken said to me after the race he said I would have been very disappointed if you hadn't stood up and fought for what was rightly yours life lessons almost isn't it yes exactly that 1983 season that we're talking about now, you've got the drive, you've done a really good job at that Rio test. What were your expectations coming into the year? I think when you're in that stage, like I am there and you're pretty realistic about the cars. Remember, it was the beginning of the turbo era, you know, with BMW and, um, and Renault and I think Ferraris was turbocharged then too. And I was pretty realistic about, look, I just need to get... And remember, points only went to sixth place. So I was just like, okay, I just want to finish races and try to see if I can, you know, maybe score some points or something like that. But just finish, finish, finish. Try to get the that. I had no expectations for a win or, you know, you, those are fantasies. But what was the car like? Because it was normally aspirated, so you, right. you didn't have the grunt of the turbo cars. Also, Derek Gardner designed car. It was a, it was a very nice pleasant car to drive it didn't do anything evil it was pretty quick but the other two that were normally aspirated was the mclaren with nikki and john watson and rossberg and i can't remember who was his teammate at williams their two cars was they were just a little bit and we could only really compare to a cosworth powered car uh, i think the the lotus might have been cosworth powered still as well but the thing is danny that car the tyrrell O double one was already two years old at that time, wasn't it? It was. It had a few mods to it, but you know, listen, I'm in Formula One. You know, it's like, yeah. you know, yeah. you're not, you're not, uh, you know, you're not concerned about that. You're just, and I think too, when you get in as a rookie, and I didn't have a lot of big formula experience. Uh, I had more in Can Am. When you get in, you're just thinking, okay, I'm in. I got a three-year contract. Okay. I just want to not make big mistakes. I want to get some good results. And you're looking a little further down the road. That's, that was the, I think that's more the mindset than thinking I'm going to go out there and set the world afire. Well, your third race. Yeah. 
the race of champions at Brands Hatch. You finished second behind the reigning world champion, Keke Rosberg, and his Williams. What an incredible day. Yeah. I can talk these stories now because I'm out of it, but, you know, it was, Ken called me on, like, um, on like Tuesday and said, hey, Michael, he can't do the race. He's not going to do the race or something, so I need you to come over. And I said, isn't the race this weekend? And he says, yeah, well, that meant I couldn't leave until Wednesday, which meant I couldn't arrive till Thursday, okay? And practice is Friday morning. Saying, where were you in the world at that Los point? Los Angeles. <laughs> okay, because I hadn't moved over to Europe yet because the European swing hadn't really gotten started. And anyway, so, so I get over there, you know, Friday went okay and Saturday. And do you remember a Formula 3 driver named Russell Wood? He was really good, and he beat Hunt and all these guys in the day, but he was a gentleman race, checkered flag. He wrote, drove for Peter Bloor and checkered flag, and he won a bunch of Formula 3 races, and Russell and I had lived together, when I say together, in the same neighborhood in London, so I got to know him pretty good, and he was living in Greenwich. And of course, Ken, I've got to take care of everything. I've got to take care of hotels and all that stuff, so I called Russell. He said, yeah, we got a room for you. Saturday night, Russell says, we always used to go out to a curry dinner before, and the dinner didn't get started till a little late, so there was a little wine before the <laughs> dinner. So when I got there, I was a little bit hungover. <laughs> and Ken said to me after the race, he said, I don't know what you did last night, but you need to keep doing that. Did you and, tell him? No, no. <laughs> but Danny, was that the race where you really felt you'd arrived? You made a really good start. You were so competitive throughout. You were putting so much pressure on Keke as well. I mean, what were people saying after that race? No, I think it, it really gave that they were like, um, even McKaylee, you know, because McKaylee didn't really know me. I think they all kind of went, well, you know, this guy's just not some guy that came from America for, you know, over there. He can do pr pretty well. And... Uh, I should have been more aggressive at, with Keke coming out of Druids. You were on his outside. Yeah, and he kind of opened the door, and I think I should have maybe tried to bang him a little bit more and, and uh, stay there. But, but it, was a, it was a good race, and it was good for coming out. The disappointing one, which nobody really remembered, was Long Beach. Remember John Watson? Of course, came. the McLarens went from the back to the front, front. didn't they? Yeah. But when my car broke, I was going away from them and I was like six places in front of John. And I was going, time-wise, when I say going away from him, they were doing whatever, let's call it a 110, and I was doing like 192s and going away. So my, my car was really good there, but we had, a, we had a mechanical failure. So I had a confidence, and even after, and you know, I had a confidence that, that Okay, I can I can drive with these guys. I mean, it's not I'm not trying to I would never pretend to say that I was as fast as Nelson PK or anything, especially not in those days. I didn't mean it that way. But I just thought I'm I can be kind of competitive and hold my own, you know. And so so much of it comes down to the track and the car on that day. Let's throw it forward now to the <laughs> Monaco Grand Prix, which is what a month, 6 weeks after that race yeah. of champions and you finished fifth. Started dead last. Yeah, and it was raining, and just, can you tell us your memories? I thought, I thought you qualified ahead of the McLarens. Oh, we did, they didn't, but that, do you remember there was two that wouldn't make the show, because there was only 20 spots for 22. They had a problem on the Thursday, because remember we had the Friday gap. On Saturday, it was pouring with rain, 
And so it was, they were done. Nowadays, they'd probably modified because I think that to, to have a difference that much on qualifying. But remember, we used to qualify twice, too. So, and then Elio DeAngelis is in the JPS, and he's 19th. So remember the pit straightaway right there, all the trees down the middle. So they were a little bit shaded, but it's raining. And I mean, it's raining. It's not, it hadn't been raining. It's still raining and it's raining. And I come up and Ken comes up to me and he says, so which tires do you want, wet or dries? He said, I thought so, you want the dries. And I'm looking at him going, I, what? And I said to him, it's raining. I, I've got to start on the wet. He goes, remember they didn't do pit stops then unless they had to. And um, he said, I thought so. It's going to stop raining soon, so start on slicks. Just be careful. And um, it's probably the most terrifying first lap. One, you have the spray. Two, it's wet. Now you're at the back, and you're on slicks. But I'll tell you how good Keke was, and he deserved a world champion. He's on slicks. Prost is on wets. Going down to the first chicane, Keke outbreaking on slicks on the first lap and Prost was no slouch in the wet I mean he was a really good wet driver and I think Alan said I don't know me I, I think he said it just totally blew him away he just couldn't recover from it God love him Ken was 100% correct after 20 laps I mean it started it stopped raining a little maybe 15 or 20 laps and then it started to dry as we drove around the place but came back and finished fifth how was that result received by the Formula One establishment? I think a little people just thought it was probably a little bit lucky, you know, we kept it off the wall or whatever, because there were, there were a number of people that spun out or had a problem, and, and the real killer was the people that had to stop for tires, mm. because it, you weren't a, that far out in front where you'd lapped a bunch of people, because it was only about 15 or 20 laps before it, it started to dry. And so they hadn't, you know, gotten away. But look, I think every little bit of it, from Brands Hatch to there, all of that just kind of adds. It probably makes people sit up and take a little notice, like, hey, maybe we ought to keep an eye on this guy type of thing. And what about back home in America? Were people waking up to, to Danny Sullivan? Quite a bit. That's what got me the drive for Doug Shearson the next year. And I knew Doug from the Atlantic. But Doug was a true racer, and he was one of those guys that really believed in the, of, of your schooling, if you like, your basis made in Europe. Uh, and I'm still a, a, a proponent of that. I tell every father, especially the ones that have the money, if, uh, what should my son do about getting experience? Get your ass to England and get in a four-mil Ford, because you can do so many races, and it's so competitive, and it's like a melting pot. Everybody comes from around the world to do Formula Ford there, and it's a great training ground. And you meet so many people in the community. But anyway, I th so from that, and then when Ken lost Benetton, or he told me we're going to lose Benetton, and believe it or not, Benetton had something that they wanted, a, a turbo car. And if you remember, Brian Hart had the turbo engine, and Tolman had the, had the deal. And I sat in the old BRDC thing at Woodcut with Ken and whoever was the head of Tolman. And I said to him, look, why don't you guys join forces, kick in a couple hundred thousand to uh, Brian Hart and help him because he had a great little package. I mean, that was a great little engine, but he needed a little bit of development money to compete with BMW and Renault and all that. 
and uh, you know Ken always believed that Ford was going to come back into the fray and and rescue him, and he wouldn't do it. And uh, Benetton, well, became Benetton. Yeah, they they jumped horses. But when that happened, Ken said, "I may have to." Take somebody that can bring money or something like that. I may not be able to keep you for. for the Were net. there any other options on the table for '84? No, not in terms of Formula One. It's, it was just, you know, there's so few seats that ever crop up. You know, you might get a year where two or three open up because somebody. But it's it's just tough. There's just not many. You know, if you look down the list, not not many people were going away, and I don't think I've impressed enough. To make somebody say, "Well, let's 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 grab him." Well, equally, Danny, you go to America, you start racing in IndyCar, you have success. Did any F1 offers come in a year later, two years later? No, I'll tell you why. I mean, I had I had a couple t- uh, chats with with some people, but I was 33 when I drove for Tyrrell. Okay, 34 when I won. I won three IndyCar races the first year. And then I won Indy, and that I was now 35, too old. And and the the age phenomenon was changing. Everybody was now looking at everybody being younger, and there just and there wasn't the availability to. Of I didn't want to go back. I didn't want to leave Penske to go to be at the back of the field. Yeah. You know, I wanted to, and not that I thought that I was more entitled to it or anything like that. But why am I going to leave something that I'm winning in, mm. and and go? struggle and you know when you're 35 years old as you reflect on your career as a whole is formula one a little bit of unfinished business or are you just pleased you did it and hey i won the indy 500 and the indycar championship and no absolutely i, w- I would have liked to have, i would have liked to have stayed in formula one for a number of years i would have liked to have gotten into a competitive car to see what i could have done and you know i I would never think about a championship or anything like that but i think that i could have won races but again if you if you're not in the right situation in the right car it's just not going to happen but no i would have my whole goal all my education, if you like, my schooling was Formula Ford, Formula 3, Formula 2. I went off and did some stuff in America, but I really wanted to stay, stay there. Can we ask you now about this win in the Indy 500? Infamous for the, the spin and the win, um, and for people who don't know what I'm talking about, you, you came up to, to take the lead from Mario Andretti. You do a 360, you keep going, Mario retakes the lead, 20 laps later, you do it for real. You win the race. How did winning the Indy 500 change your life? It's a title, if you like. It's not just winning a race. It's a title. And, um, you know, you're an Indy 500 winner. I remember Alan Prost. I saw him at the Detroit Grand Prix like two weeks later. And I'd gone because I had the weekend off and I just wanted to go see some people and, and hang out with Ken and everybody and just, you know, visit. And I saw Prost and he says, hey, I'll trade you that any win for a couple of Grand Prix wins. What do you think? You know, and it was just because it was the, it's still the Indy 500. You know, it's a, it's a big deal. It did change my life. I mean, it's, it's, uh, I won three other 500 mile racers, races, but not a, not another Indy 500, but it's, it's still the door opener. And there's one extraordinary thing I wanted to ask you about. I think it was 89 where during practice you broke your right arm. Yeah. Was it six days? Yeah. Six days later, you're back in the car. Yeah. Explain that. I had a crash. There was a bodywork failure. It popped off going into into turn three, 
and I was right entering turn three. I just I just hit like 238 miles an hour, and I turned in, and the bodywork popped up and came off. And you know, it's funny. You got this little piece of fiberglass around you. It wasn't even carbon, I don't think, back in the day, and it pops off. And you go, gosh, I'm really exposed, <laughs> you know, like like it was going to stop anything anyway. But when I hit, I I don't I don't remember any of it. I put my arm up, and the um, the right front came back and hit my arm and uh, shattered my arm. So they put a plate and seven screws in that night. The funny, I had this trainer, and everybody laughed back in the day because I had I had this trainer long, long time, a really good guy. He had me on a stationary bike at 9 a.m. the next morning for three hours to get all the, all the antibiotics, everything, all the drugs that they give you to do to clean the system. And I realized, I said, started asking, I said, well, look, you know, can I turn the wheel with my, my hand and my bicep and bypass my forearm? So I found a guy and I made a brace it went right through right through here on my hand and went up and then it bypassed there and I went to my bicep and I made a little knob on the steering wheel and I jammed that plate right in there like that and I drive and uh, I was second fast I mean I was fastest qualifier second weekend six days later I was fastest qualifier what an extraordinary story how did you find the ovals you know you've had this European education did you have to relearn how how to drive a race car on an oval absolutely there's a whole different technique to it i just think of nelson piquet when he went to indy and he had that horrible accident i think nelson would have been fine there the guy and the team that he went to didn't have the best reputation for he always made fast cars didn't always make the safest of cars Mm. and the problem at indy is that accidents there are, are big and uh it was unfortunate for Nelson. I knew Nelson pretty well, but not well enough that he felt like he could have called me up and asked my advice. And he would have been, he would have been like Emerson. He would have been just like how Emerson, he would have adapted to it because Nelson's just a phenomenal racer, loves it. So I think it's, it's something that you have to learn. Indy, of all things, is not really, it's an oval, but it doesn't have very much banking. I think the steepest part's like 11 degrees, and it's not much the way Michigan is, which is 26 degrees. And, mm-hmm. and when we first went to Atlanta, I get there, and I, it was my first oval race. And I'm driving for the Forsyth. Huey uh, Absalom, I think, was the crew chief English guy. And I was out to lunch. I'm like 25th, you know, best. I mean, I was just, I just didn't know how to do it. And I, I came out of the portal can going down to qualify, and I saw Al Lunter Sr., and I said, Al, can you give me a pointer here? And I knew him from some of the Can-Am days. And he said, well, I know you, so I wouldn't tell this to anybody, but he said, you're doing exactly what every road racer does. You come to the corner, you roll out of the throttle, and you go down into the corner, get it all set. And then he says, you got to carry your speed down into the middle of the corner, roll out, let the banking kind of set the car, and then pick up the throttle and go off like that. So I said, tell Wally you want to take three warm-up laps. So I did the first lap. I think we used to run those things at like 11,000 RPM at that time. So the first lap I did it at like 8,000 RPM, carried the speed down, okay, not too bad, 9,000, 10,000. Qualified 10th, finished third, highest finish for a rookie. But I wouldn't have known that if somebody didn't, I, you know, eventually you might have picked it up, but boy, it's it's just a different beast. When you get a car right on an oval, 
it's fantastic fun. When it's, when it's bad, it's a nightmare. We're chatting in Mexico, where you are the driver steward for the weekend. What do you make of all the runoff in Formula One in particular now? Do you think it's a good thing? And, you know, everyone talks about track limits. I, I ran into uh, a team principal, and I'm just not going to say names or anything. He said to me yesterday, he said, this whole track limits thing is a joke. He said, what we really ought to do is move the walls back in closer to the track. He said, then we wouldn't have any problems. They wouldn't be, they wouldn't be out there running. The problem is, like, in the background, we've got a race coming on there. For a lot of the junior formulas and everything and for tracks and for that, it's a safety issue. They make it. It's, it gives runoffs, especially for the junior formulas and, and if they're racing bikes and stuff like that. Uh, and I think Michael Massey's done a great job and the stewards have the track limit are sacrosanct, and they ought to stay that way. If you break the track limit, it's a penalty. You wouldn't break the track limit at Monaco or or some of the other places, you know, and if that was all grass out there, you certainly wouldn't break the track limit. You saw in the practice how when the oil dry went down from the historic, none of those guys were out there running over that deal because they knew that it wouldn't do it. So... It's, it's a hard balance, you know, to figure out to do that. But I think that the, the current rules are probably designed correctly. You know, it's a, very, uh, just a, it's a very different situation to be a driver and then go sit up in a steward's room. You are the poacher turn gamekeeper, aren't you? Well, you, really well, you are. are, but you, you look at it from a different thing. The, the real, what a lot of people don't realize, we don't make the, we're not making the rules up. We're not making them up as we go. We're up there to judge what happened and, and if there's a penalty to, to make a decision. Even the penalties are laid out of what we're supposed to, to give. So, Do you enjoy it? I do because it's given me a different perspective. I don't like it all the time when you're you know, on some of the tough calls because I, I, I admire what the drivers are doing and I see it from their perspective what they're trying to accomplish. And you know, as much as it's at stake for teams and for the drivers in terms of points, you can understand why they're fighting for everything that they possibly can and they're willing to push the envelope. One thing I did want to ask you, the Andretti deal. For those listening who aren't aware of it, Michael Andretti, very successful IndyCar driver, IndyCar team owner, tried to put a deal together to buy the Alfa Romeo Sauber team. It's fallen through. And one of the controversies that has come up on the back of that is is the topic of American drivers, because Michael came out recently in the media and said, there is an arrogance in Europe towards American drivers. And um, I think some guys at Sauber may have said to him, Colton Herter might find it hard in Formula One because he doesn't know the cars, the tires, the circuits. What is your take on, on American drivers? Who is the next big thing? Is there anyone ready? I think that Colton, um, of course, he's been over here. In fact, I think he drove for Christian Horner's team in, in some of the junior formos. And I think that Colton, particularly because of his age, because he would have time to adapt. And absolutely, anybody that was going to go out there that didn't have the tire situation and some of the technologies, they're going to have a hard time to adapt. To, to that but if you're in the right team and you're in a, a learning deal I think that's the correct way I found that there's talent all over the world in in all categories and you can't say oh Formula One um, these guys are the best yeah they're they're the best in Formula One right there but look at Mark Weber when he jumped in the Porsche uh, sports car 
he was not often the fastest driver in the car. You'd think Mark would just go in, and, and he was as current as you can be. I mean, he just, he just won Grand Prix, and he's now driving there. I think that, um, one, Colton Herta has to have, would have the right attitude because he'd want to come over and do this. He'd look at it as a challenge. And I think that that's a, a big factor. That was one of the problems when we did the Red Bull driver search program is there's so many big series in America and there's alternatives. A lot of guys don't want to live alone, uh, li- leave America and live in Europe alone in a, where they're not surrounded by their family and friends the way they are back home. And, uh, you know, I loved it. I mean, I loved it over here. But I remember when we did the r- driver search program, it was as much about teaching lifestyle as anything else but the talent is out there i'll give you an example walter hayes is going on right now right max esterson who's a a really good young driver he's 17 years old he he won the heat won the semi and he's on the pole for the final that's going on right now he's an american kid he would move over here in in two seconds and he's in fact he's been in england for the year adapting to the sofa but i think like everything for any driver any nationality you have to go into the right setting where it's going to help you to advance and learn the techniques. You can't go into a toxic situation and always be on the back foot. You know, it has to be something where you're engaged. Look how much trouble Alan Prost had when he went to Williams. It virtually stopped his career. But all the guys that won at World Championships at Williams were all tough guys. You know, Alan Jones, Villeneuve, PK. It was just kind of like like this. But they had that kind of personality. So I think there was as much to that as anything. Danny, you touched on the Red Bull driver search. You were in charge of it. And, and tell me if I'm wrong, but your job was to, to get an American into Formula One. Right. Go, go find someone, Danny. Right. Is that, was that the message? Basically? That was the message, yeah. And given that you know, Red Bull had the money, they had their own team in Formula One, and of course you found Scott Speed and he, he drove for Toro Rosso. But on the topic of American talent, the staircase was there. It was. And there hasn't been an American world champion. No. Um, you know, when that went away... I think we would have needed a couple of different iterations of that to find the, you know, to find the talent. Because the first time, you know, I'm kind of calling buddies up and, hey, this. And we, we had some good kids. But, again, it came back somewhat, believe it or not, to the lifestyle thing. It came back to, hey, you know, when you go to a racetrack, you, you go to racetracks all over the world. This, this media room could be anywhere you're going to go in the, uh, for 23 races, right? The paddock is almost the same. Everything's the same. Okay, it's when you're alone and you leave the the track and now you go back to a strange place and strange hours to get your food and stuff like that. Michael Andretti had trouble adapting to it, even though we all said move to Europe to become a little bit more engaged. You know, Americans are pretty spoiled. They have so much available to them, so many amenities. The lifestyle is relatively easy. It's not always that easy in Europe. Okay, and um, again, I'm not I'm not preaching anybody, but you had to find people that that's what it was. And I think that if that program had stayed a little bit longer, we may have been able to find some some kids and give. Because the big thing too is is coming over here, but then having the opportunity to get in the right team, and that's that's where 
Red Bull, Dr. Marco, Thomas Uberall, they had the connections to put them in the right team. American shows up over here with with a bag full of money unless his bag's twice as big as everybody else. It's going to be hard to get into that team. Make sure you get the right engineer and somebody's not just saying thank you very much. Do you think the recent surge in interest in Formula One will help develop that interest from drivers? Big time. Austin two weeks ago, 400,000 people yeah. turned up. We've got Miami coming on It's sold next out. May. It's sold, it's, I think it's sold out. Miami already? Yeah. <laughs> I think they sold out in 40 yeah. minutes. You know what that came from, believe it or not? I mean, part of it's internet and everything that's going on. Drive to Survive. Sean Bratches. You've got to give Sean Bratches and Formula One all the credit in the world because they, you know, my understanding is they, they paid for it to do it. Now you have IndyCar, NASCAR, the PGA Tour, everybody's trying to create that deal because it really showed what a lot went on behind the scenes. That's what people are interested in. Okay, we watch a race, we watch the Formula One race, you get all the specs and, and all that, but it's not, it's not how Netflix opened up with that drive to survive the behind the scenes. Mm. I've got buddies in America, didn't follow racing, nothing. They are all in hook, line, and sinker. They binge watched it. They binge watched, and they're and by the way, these guys are bought. They bought paddock club tickets. They're going to Miami. They're going. I mean, you know, there's such a feel good factor, isn't there? With F1 in America now. Do you think we'll get a third race at Indianapolis? Your old boss, Roger Penske, do you think he's interested? Well, if anybody, you know, I don't know. I haven't had a talk with Roger. Roger keeps his cards pretty close to his chest. He said, we're looking at all other type of, you know, operation. I think that if it's done correctly and they've made some changes to what it was when they were there before, it is Indianapolis, okay? And I think that that would be good. But, you know, they've talked about Las Vegas. And, you know, I was involved way back in the 90s with Steve Wynn on trying to bring something there. And, I mean, he had meetings with Bernie and, and stuff like that. But I think there's an appetite for it. It's, it's just making sure you have the right venue for Formula One. Uh, Austin, I think everybody loves Austin, the town, uh, the track. I mean, they got a couple of bumpy issues and stuff like that. But I think in the track, it, it's produced some really good racing over the years. So I think that'll stay in Miami. I mean, you'd almost like to go, uh, if you're looking geographically, Miami, uh, Austin, and then almost to the West Coast. But we don't have anything on the West Coast. Long Beach? Um, I don't think that you could do enough to get Long Beach to meet the requirements for Formula One. But I think Indianapolis would be good. It's always a matter of, with such a busy calendar, where do you slot it in? Because in America, as in Europe, weather is a factor. You, you don't want to go to India at the wrong time of year and then have just bad weather, you know. Hopefully Montreal will come back, you know, if we get the pandemic under control they'll come back that was always a really popular one so exciting times ahead Danny it's been such a joy to speak to you thank you for coming on the show there's one more thing I wanted to ask you this is such a phenomenal Formula One season Max Verstappen Lewis Hamilton how do you read it I think right now if if you were going to put a bet if we were sitting in Vegas the Red Bull seems to have been a little bit more dominant on every place that they've gone 
but I don't think you can ever count out Lewis and Mercedes. I um, mean, you know, to win seven world championships says a lot about the driver. Nobody needs a hiccup because if you do and somebody scores maximum points, I think it's 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 probably pretty much gone. But I think it's really exciting. I mean, I think it's been I think it's tremendous, and I think you know Lewis Lewis can dig deep. Max is hunting hard, and and they're both great teams. Uh, I, don't, I don't know. I don't, I don't know if I'd like to, to make a bet on either one of those. Uh, certainly, I don't want to say anything and then have them come into the room and say, hey, we heard what you said, <laughs> you know. But um, Put your helmet back on, Danny. Which car would you like to be driving? I think it would depend on which one would adapt to my style right, right now better. And, and we've seen that the Red Bull has been a little bit more of a challenge for some of the number two drivers to drive, but it's, it suits Max. So then I'd probably say I'd probably be more on the um, Mercedes side because it seems like both he and even though they have a little bit different styles, Lewis and, and Valtteri seem to be on par most of the time. Well, let's hope it goes down to Abu Dhabi. Danny, thanks again. Great to have Anytime. you. Anytime. My pleasure. Great talking to you. After 50 years in the sport, Danny oozes experience and racing wisdom, doesn't he? Which is one of the reasons why he makes such a good driver steward these days. But I loved his recollections of living with Ken and Nora Tyrrell. And can you imagine the arguments they had? And to think that he had dinner with Francois Sever all those years ago. How many people listening to this would have loved to do that? Danny, many thanks for your time. It was great to catch up and I look forward to seeing you at a racetrack again soon. As ever, please remember to send in any thoughts and stories that you have on Danny. Were you at Monaco or the Race of Champions in 83? Or even his victory in the Indy 500 two years later? Let me know and remember, I'll read out the best ones next week. Which brings me on to what you sent in about Valtteri Bottas after last week's show. Let's start with this from Rahul Aurora. Gem of an episode, and should I say gem of a person, being a team player makes Valtteri one of the few gentlemen the sport has ever seen. Best wishes for the upcoming journey with Alfa Romeo. Well, that's a lovely message, Rahul. Valtteri is a gem, and let's hope Alfa give him a car capable of those podiums he so craves next year. Next, let's hear this from Shane Bucks. What a brilliant listen, says Shane. You chatting with the legend that is Valtteri Bottas. Shout out to Valtteri for being so open and honest. Definitely one man I'd love to go for a coffee with, especially after his description of a good coffee. He is all of those things you describe, Shane, and I'm glad you highlighted his description of a good coffee. He really loves it, doesn't he? Next up, let's hear from Gillian B from Down Under. Such a great episode. Valtteri is so honest and well-spoken. I wish him all the best with Alfa Romeo and hope the job security allows him a more restful season. I welcome Valtteri as an honorary Aussie. Well said, Gillian, and I think he'll take the honorary Aussie comment given his girlfriend Tiffany's roots down under as well. And here's one final comment from Lance K. Tom. The VB interview had me with a lump in my throat throughout most of it. I'll be cheering him on next year with Alpha. What a great guy, honest to a fault. 
I think many of us will be cheering him on, Lance. And the wonderful thing about sitting down with drivers for an hour on Beyond the Grid is that it allows them to talk freely. And Valtteri did that, and we understand his situation much better now. As ever, we got lots more messages. Thank you to everyone who wrote in. We love hearing what you have to say. And please remember to send in your thoughts and stories on Danny, some of which I'll read out on the show next week. That's all for now. I'll be back in just seven sleeps with another great guest from the world of Formula One. Beyond the Grid is produced by F1 in association with Audio Boom Studios. Until next time, keep it flat out. <laughs>